welcome to another episode of Just the Chats, European Movement Ireland's podcast series, where we sit down and chat to a range of people on all things Ireland and Europe. My name is Noelle O'Connell and I'm the CEO of European Movement Ireland. And since 1954, we have been working to strengthen and develop the connection between all levels of Ireland and Europe. And we go about doing that by providing information in language that is clear, understandable, and ensuring a robust debate on all European matters. We've had a fantastic series of podcast guests up to now, and I'm delighted to see that tradition continuing in terms of our guest for today's podcast, who we are very honored to welcome the new British ambassador to Ireland, His Excellency Paul Johnson, who took up his role in September. Ambassador, a very warm welcome to you. Thanks so much, Noel. Great to be here. Thank you for taking the time to engage in our Just the Chats podcast. As you know, here in Ireland, we love chatting. We love our, we love our chats. And we're delighted to, to have you as our guest today, um, Ambassador. Can I, can I call you Paul? Yes, of course. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, Paul, you have a really impressive uh, and very distinguished uh, diplomatic career that has brought you to these shores as uh, the most recent British ambassador to Ireland. Do you want to tell our listeners a wee bit about where, where and when you started and how you came to be in the role that you're in now? Sure, thank you very much. Well, I, I got into the Foreign Office by a sort of curious route. I am... Um, I came from the sort of background which was was far away from the worlds of Whitehall, let alone international diplomacy. And I guess so two things introduced me to the, uh, the sort of the higher ranks of the civil service when I was a graduate, an undergraduate rather, at Glasgow University. One was watching Yes Minister, which I thought was uh, <laughs> looked like a very attractive and entertaining job. But more seriously, there was a sort of documentary about the civil servants' entrance exam process, and it just looked like a really sort of fascinating insight into a very different world. And so I applied to do the, the so-called fast stream entry exams um, at the end of 1989. And rather to my surprise, got through all the various stages and was offered, was offered a position in the Home Civil Service and the Foreign Office. And okay. um, went into the civil service to start with. And then after three years, switched over to the Foreign Office and have been there sort of man and boy uh, ever since, including postings in Paris, New York, Stockholm, Brussels, and now the, the lovely city of Dublin. So have had a fantastic and very varied career and um, are absolutely thrilled to be here, my wife and I, at this very interesting moment in, um, in British-Irish relations. And indeed, um, going back to the sort of theme of your podcast series, the whole future of Europe debate is, is very live and interesting. So um, it's, uh, it's, it's fantastic to be here. Wow, what what an interesting career journey you, you've you've had, uh, Paul. I mean, can can I put you on the spot and ask you, where was your favourite posting? I mean, I'm excluding Dublin because you haven't been here long enough to give a definitive answer. So, in your previous postings, which which one kind of stands out the most for you? Would you say? Um, I think I would probably say New York because for a number of reasons, it was the posting my wife and I did together for the first time just a few months after we got married. And it came about at very short notice. And we ended up there for three years. Um, I was working, it's probably the hardest work I'd ever done. I was in charge of all the Security Council issues in our mission to the United Nations. And this was in the days before sort of mobile IT. So you had to finish your working day in the office. There was no sort of working from home. So I worked very long hours um, at the UN and then in our office in the evenings afterwards. But we had a lovely apartment close to Central Park we had all the great sort of culture and nature of, of New York. Uh, we, made, we met great friends. We lived in this apartment building where everyone else was a multimillionaire. So we were rather sort of the church mice. But uh, the, the, the sort of the habit of just bumping into your neighbours in the lift every day or in the elevator meant that we made some really good friends there uh, whom we stayed in touch with. And being a diplomat in the United Nations Security Council, as Ireland will find out again in a few weeks' time, it's really the equivalent for a diplomat of being you know, a footballer in the World Cup or an athlete in the Olympics. You're up against you the best that other diplomatic services have to have to offer. So it was professionally fascinating and, and, and personally great fun. I'll always have a special place in my heart for Paris, which was my first posting, which I went to as a uh, as a young diplomat, um, gosh, 25 years ago. And being ambassador in Stockholm was excellent as well. 
And just to complete my very unselective answer, you know, Brussels, the, the, the four years we were in Brussels was tremendous. But I think if I had to choose one out of the, the four, I would, I would inevitably choose New York, I think. For, for those reasons. A, a yeah. very diplomatic answer, Paul. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm hugely impressed there. I'm hugely impressed. And you've, you've touched, Paul, there um, in terms of your New York posting. Obviously, it is something that we in Ireland are, are very proud of, that we will be yeah. uh, taking the seat on, uh, on the United Nations uh, Security Council. What, what advice would you give to, uh, give to your, your Irish counterparts in terms of how we can make it a success? Because obviously the UK has, has a very distinguished and long track record of being a permanent member on, on the Security Council. And I suppose we are the relative uh, uh, newbies on the block. I think the key thing in the Security Council is that every voice really matters. And what I've said to my uh, Irish uh, colleagues in my first few weeks here when they've been kind enough to ask about my own experience is don't overstate this um, distinction which is often made in the media between the permanent members and the elected members. You know, the council is only 15 people. Every vote and every vote really counts. Some of the biggest and tensest negotiations that I did, for example, getting the first case onto the books of the International Criminal Court, we just got enough votes. We got 10 votes out of 15 and you need nine out of 15 and no vetoes in order to, to get a resolution passed. So every single vote counted and every voice counts. It's a very, in a strange way, it's a sort of very democratic place and it's quite an intimate place. And some of the uh, elected members who only do two year terms um, in the period I was there, you made very distinctive contributions because they fastened on one or two issues which were particular priorities for them. I remember when it was um, Denmark, it was to do with post-conflict peace building, which I know is also a priority for the, uh, for the Irish government. Um, for Slovakia, I think it was counter-proliferation. Uh, and I think, and I've said this in my, um, the, an article I did for the Irish Times back on UN Day in October, that the, the sort of cross-cutting, the thematic priorities that the Taoiseach spoke about in his address to the General Assembly, issues like accountability, climate security, peacekeeping, prevention, um, are all very much to the fore. They're all areas where I would say the sort of progressive stroke, like-minded members of the Security Council need to make common cause. So we're really looking forward to working with Ireland, with France, with Norway, um, because the Europeans are in a way the, sort of the still centre of the Security Council at a time when the Council's probably now more polarised than, than it's been for a long time. So I think there's a big contribution Ireland can make on the everyday agenda of the council, plus on its own priorities as well. Absolutely. And, and it's something I think that we are all um, hopeful of, but, but equally mindful of the challenges that are, are going to face us as we sit around that table against the backdrop of a world that maybe hopefully will become somewhat less polarised, but still huge geopolitical challenges facing in terms of the you know the, the, the polar order and where where different blocks are is is that something that you would be you would be very mindful of in your own role uh, I suppose how do you see you as British ambassador to Ireland straddling uh, a, a lot of uh, a lot of different blocks I suppose Paul if I can put it that way I mean one of the interesting things that strikes me about this job and one of the reasons I, I applied for it was that there are so many dimensions to it. There's obviously the UK-Irish dimension with a huge amount of history, some of it very complicated. There's our particular sort of shared responsibility as co-guarantors for the Belfast Good Friday Agreement in relation to Northern Ireland. There's issues to do with the future UK-EU relationship. There are also really important global issues. So at the end of next year, Britain will be hosting the so-called COP26, the UN Climate Conference in Glasgow. Um, Ireland will be there. Ireland is doing a lot on climate action at the moment in its own legislation and its own policy priorities. So there's some big global issues to work on there. The fact that we'll be on the Security Council together for the next couple of years means that we'll have a, a shared say in dealing with all the big intractable problems of uh, the Middle East, of Africa uh, and of beyond. So what I think is, is particularly interesting about this job is that in the sort of the sort of the jargony language of, of, of foreign affairs, there are bilateral, there are European, there are multilateral, there are regional issues. 
um, which all sort of intersect in the in the British-Irish relationship, which makes it such a such a fun job, uh, a, a sort of heavily loaded job, but but a job with lots of um, lots of opportunity to I think to make uh, to make change in the next few years. Yeah, because it's it's probably fair to say, Paul, you're you're assuming the mantle of British ambassador to Ireland at an incredibly unique time in British-Irish relations, and not least. Um, you know, we're, we're all trying to deal with the backdrop of, of the COVID pandemic. So mm -hmm. your arrival was probably somewhat uh, curtailed in terms of the normal meet and greets that you would normally have engaged with. And like this, this podcast is a case in point. We would love to have done this face to face, but it wasn't to be. The wonders of technology have enabled us to do it virtually. Um, how have you found settling into Ireland since your arrival? So it's probably been good for my waistline because I've had many fewer Ferrero Rochers than I would have done if I'd been <laughs> at an endless series of ambassadorial uh, receptions just to perpetuate the media stereotype about our, our lifestyle. But no, I mean, I've been really warmly welcomed. Uh, much of my initial sort of uh, contacts have been done by Zoom or by Microsoft or by uh, other services are available, but you know, by, by virtual technology. I've gone to see some people in person where the nature of the meeting has um, has argued for that, but most of it's been done sort of hunched over a, a small screen. So it's probably been good for my waistline, not perhaps so good for my back. But um, <laughs> in, in a funny sort of way, um, and I've said this to a number of people, the sort of arriving and having the two weeks of restricted movements, and then I think roughly 10 days of level three, and then since then three weeks of, I think it is level five. Um, at least to start with, it was a bit of a blessing because when you start a posting, I mean, I guess when you, people say one of the most stressful things you can do is sort of um, change jobs or move house. Well, I, you know, diplomats do both at the same time and they move country as well. And it's always a slightly hectic process. And I remember arriving in Stockholm and I think the day after I arrived, I had to do a royal event and then various things just piled on upon each other. Whereas here, you know, the first few weeks have been, I've been working hard and doing lots of meetings with Irish counterparts and, you know, meetings with British ministers and officials virtually and, and other things, but I haven't been, you know, going out to events and hosting events in quite the same way as you would do in a normal non-COVID or pre-COVID world. So to that extent, it's been a sort of softer launch than it might have been. Um, but now, of course, I'm itching to get out and do all that sort of stuff and uh, you attend events and travel around the country. Um, but the COVID has meant that it's been, uh, I mean, it, 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 it ate into my preparation for Dublin, because I'd, I'd wanted to do um, you know, academic and commercial secondments and do um, Irish language learning and all the rest of it. But I ended up spending three months working on the coronavirus crisis in the Foreign Office. Um, so my preparation time was was probably about halved. Um, and it's just been, you know, it, it is what it is. And many, many people have had much worse experiences than than me but it's it's affected both the preparation for the job and really how I've managed to do the job in its first few months but you know god willing we hear better news every day about vaccines and mass testing so perhaps within a few weeks or months we'll be moving back to to something like you know an old or new normal Amen to that, and, and so say all of us. I mean, hopefully, all the, all the positive news and, and the great work being done in Oxford. Uh, I, I know you're, you're you're following that. It's it's fantastic to see to see that. So we're, we'll keep all our fingers crossed. And I know that the Ferrero Rocher anecdote. I have to say, in all my years in this job and in all ambassadorial functions that I've ever been to, in whatever country they were, I've never once had a Ferrero Rocher. It, you know, it, the cliche doesn't ring true. I think it was probably a bit of a binary thing for Ferrero Rocher. I imagine their sales in the rest of, in the rest of the sort of in the rest of society probably went up because people thought, oh, this is what is served at sort of glitzy diplomatic receptions. And probably <laughs> their sale their sales in, in embassies and residences, which were never very high, probably plummeted because people thought we mustn't live up to that stereotype. But I must say I've never had one there either. But um, and I make no comment on their quality uh, either way. But um, yeah. <laughs> Well, um, there, there you go. That, that, it's that, an occupational hazard in this job to sort of um, to eat too well and to drink too well. So it's it's no bad thing to have been, um, you know, been on a form of enforced diet as a result of uh, not going out so much in the uh, in the first few months in the job. 
Of course, and and your 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 humble abode is is the beautiful Glencairn, which Indeed. has been which has been the scene for a great many fantastic events and occasions, some of which I've been very fortunate to have been at. But I think for Paul, I'm sure you'd agree, it, it represents a a melting pot and and a meeting environment. For, for Britain and Ireland, doesn't it really? It's it's where we can all kind of get together and it's just cementing that relationship really, isn't it? Exactly. And that's one of the things which in a way sounds old fashioned, but I think is part of what diplomacy is all about and why we have these nice residences. It's to create a space where you can get diverse groups of people together, sometimes very privately, even secretly, um, but often just an opportunity to to bring people together from different parts of society and offer them the opportunity to, to interact. So when I was ambassador in Stockholm, for example, we did a lot on science and on business, partly because Stockholm is the home of the, the Nobel Prizes and there was a big British-Swedish science relationship. And so every few months we would host these events in which we'd bring over young IT startups and entrepreneurs from the UK and we'd have actual or potential Swedish investors and they would literally, we would have a sort of buffet dinner and they would all move around from table to table, sort of chatting to each other. And I used to call it speed dating for science. But out of that, <laughs> lots of young British scientific startups made really good connections with, with Swedish investors. And things have been generated as a result that will have saved people's lives or certainly simplified people's lives. So I'm very keen as we look to the world beyond COVID to look at our two economies and our two societies and look at science and academia more generally, look at the economy, look at business and investment, and just think, what are the new features on the post-COVID economic and societal landscape, whether that's how to do better healthcare, better social care, what are the new education and skills requirements of the post-COVID world? What does it mean for the links between science and business? What does it mean for modern environmentally sustainable agriculture, renewable energy, all these areas, and just to sort of map out how Britain and Ireland, who are so interconnected in so many ways, can take that cooperation to a, to a new level, really. Very ambitious agenda, Paul. What, what would you what would you see as your 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 top priorities for the speed dating for science equivalent here in Ireland for for you as 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 Britain's ambassador? So the the, the cop out answer is to say, in any such occasion, the ambassador is always the person who knows least about the subject of of any of those involved. I remember hosting a dinner which was to do with, I think it was like sort of emergency breathing equipment, which a British company was trying to sell to the Swedish um, sort of emergency services sector. And I'd been given this briefing by the British company, which was highly, highly technical. And it was my job to chair this sort of dinner discussion. And, you, and at one level, you couldn't have chosen a worse person because I knew nothing about it. But I was sort of asked all the obvious questions that, you know, hopefully a well-informed generalist could could ask, which is a long-winded way of saying that, you know, what I would want to do really is to bring people together from the sort of top Irish universities and research places and, you know, IBEC and the Association of Irish Exporters and others with their British counterparts and just sort of have a sort of brainstorming and say, you know, where are the areas where you can detect that there might be useful partnerships to create? So our embassy priorities include things like agri-food, construction, renewable energy, pharma, you know, IT services, which are all partly because they're Irish and or British areas of, of strength. But I just can't help thinking that over the next year or so, the changes underway in our economy and our society, which COVID has probably accelerated, you know, will throw up areas which we might not have thought of a year or two ago. Um, so I want to sort of keep an open mind and just be ready to adjust our priorities and resources so that we can catch you the coming waves of you know economic activity or policy activity absolutely and and a real opportunity paul i think for us to think differently and creatively about how yeah. how, how we navigate our recovery uh, in, in the post covid world and what opportunities can we collectively leverage together uh, to to create a more positive future, hopefully, really. Isn't that what it's all so. about? I mean, the downside is it's going to be a big economic shock to both countries, a big hit to our public finances, and as well as obviously the you know, the tens of thousands of lives that have been lost um, on both sides of the of the Irish Sea. But 
if one wants to see you know, the, the upsides through this, through this very difficult crisis, it is that I think people will need to think about the role of the state perhaps in a different way than they, they had done before. Our, our government has a very ambitious so-called levelling up agenda, which is a recognition that perhaps for, for much of the last 30 or 40 years, too much power and wealth has been you know, unevenly concentrated in parts of the United Kingdom. So this time last week, I was taking part in a seminar with the Tonishta and Simon Coveney and Irish sort of business experts with the mayors of Greater Manchester and Greater Liverpool, sort of two big cities with big connections to Ireland, two cities which were sort of 200 years ago at the sort of at the fulcrum of the first industrial revolution. And they're really keen to get ahead of the game on the fourth industrial revolution. And they see a big part of that as the relationship with Ireland, not just the business relationship, but you know, cultural, sporting, uh, and all the rest of it. And they're hoping to bring a trade mission to Ireland next autumn, potentially with footballers from Manchester and Liverpool, which gets me very excited. Um, but you know, I think that's just one example of how both governments' um, agenda of you know rethinking important aspects of economy and society in the wake of the pandemic and all the other changes that are affecting us. Um, how that can be done in an interesting way together. And the Prime Minister and the Taoiseach met in Belfast in August. And one of the things they talked about was after Britain has left the post-EU transition period and we have our new relationship, you know, how do Britain and Ireland look at their interests together in a, in a fresh way and look at the sort of full spectrum of what we can do together across prosperity issues, people issues, society issues, security issues, because we have such deep and broad interests uh, and that's a very exciting project to be engaged in. I can well imagine. And, and, and as, as you mentioned there, Paul, in terms of the levelling up, but also uh, that meeting that you had with the mayors of Manchester and Liverpool, celebrating the upcoming opening of a new Irish consulate in Indeed. Manchester to serve the north of England. And that follows very closely from last year's opening of Enterprise Ireland's second UK office. So that's really a, an important part, I think, from an Irish perspective, of cementing our, our global footprint, but also reinforcing the strong bilateral relations that exist between our two countries, notwithstanding, uh, notwithstanding everything that's happening, uh, you know, in the in the uh, in the outer realms of that. Will I put it that yeah. way? Maybe. I mean, it's it's amazing going around meeting Irish uh, ministers and indeed the president and the, the Tonishta and senior officials. How often people will say. I did part of my education in the UK or my parents met in England or I'm married to an English person or my brother or sister is teaching or working in London or Leicester or wherever. So the, the, the relationships are very, are very deep and very sort of integrated and notwithstanding some of the sort of what Harold McMillan called the little local difficulties, there's this, <laughs> there's, there's the very strong um, affinity and just this sort of deep set of of interconnections. I think the British Council is on to the fifth volume of um, studies into the British-Irish modern relationship, and it's called Lives Intertwined, and it's a series of people who are just relating how, you know, a large part of their lives has been spent in the other country. And so, although there are, you know, for, for very good reasons, issues of difficulty and sensitivity looking back to the past, and one mustn't minimise that, and, and I think, you know, the the, the, the very dignified um, uh, commemorations of uh, over the weekend of Bloody Sunday and, and, and the very sort of, um, I thought, profound statement the president made, you illustrates there are moments in our history which, as the Queen said in her, in her speech in Dublin Castle, you know, there are things that we would have wanted done differently or, or not done at all. So there are all those important you know, reflections. But I think, I'm, I think, Diplomats nowadays have to be congenital optimists, otherwise you'd never get out from under the duvet. And one of the things that gets me out from under the duvet every morning, apart from the prospect of going for a lovely bracing walk, is, 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 is the idea that you can do something, even if only a small way, which makes things better for other people. That, to me, is, is what public service is all about. I probably sounds a bit cheesy, but that's, that's, I think, what's quite motivating about it. You don't go into this, I guess it's the same as academia, you don't go into this business for the money, you go into it because it's intrinsically interesting and you think you can make a difference. 
And that's hugely important, uh, Paul, and, and so say all of us. You, you touched upon a huge number of topics there that I really want to delve into with, with you a, a little bit further. Um, if I can just, you, you referenced obviously the uh, hugely emotive and very dignified Bloody Sunday commemorations. And obviously that, that I suppose reflects back to the, the complexity of the relationships underpinning our two countries in terms of your position here as, as British ambassador, how mindful are you of that complexity and that history, that shared history in all its nuances, in all its difficulties it, through the good times and the bad? How, how does that guide you in terms of your, your roadmap in your term as ambassador? I think you need to be very conscious of the, the history and it feels to me much more so in this job than, for example, in Sweden, that you know, the UK Swedish history, Vikings and other things notwithstanding, is not nearly as, as complex as UK Irish history. So I read, tried to read a good deal of history in preparation for the job and I'm still doing so and one of the things I most enjoy is meeting and talking to, to historians and others and just trying to, you know, to, to, to get people's insights and I think one has to approach this you know, humbly and respectfully, uh, but it's it's uh, it's that sort of you know, that Robert Burns um, says, and I won't try and do the sort of the Scottish accent, but he says something like, "If if we had the gift to give us to see ourselves as others see us," and I think that's partly what an ambassador needs to to understand to understand how his country or her country is viewed in the country in which they're 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 posted. And to try and understand about you know, the reasons why you know, we're seen in the way we are, and I think just you know, and you don't want to be paralysed by the past. Um, and I think you know, I've I've lived in countries where there's still been you know, when I was in France in the mid 1990s, there was still quite a painful process of looking back at aspects of its past. Um, and I think you know, we all in our different ways have to have to do that. And what struck me so far about the the so-called decade of centenaries has been the level of sort of you know objectivity and inclusivity and people you know uh, just accepting as the president says in his statement that one one event or one series of events can be seen in very different ways by different communities and, and different people at different times and that to me is part of the part of the beauty of history part of my university degree was 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 a history degree in my my eldest nephew is just starting one at Cambridge, and I think one of the one of the great, you know, charms of history is that there's no single there's no single absolute, um, you know, total version of anything. Everything is about perspectives, and I think part of a diplomat's job. Uh, one of my former bosses in the Foreign Office, quoting I'm sure someone else, says, "You diplomacy is about letting other people have your way," which was a way of saying, and I've I've done this often in multilateral diplomacy. You're trying to sell, you know, your approach to a certain issue. But in order to do that, when I was in NATO trying to persuade 20, whatever it was, eight other countries to agree a common position on Russia in the run-up to the, the Warsaw Summit, you know, as you might imagine, the countries of Eastern Europe saw the Russia challenge in a very different way to the countries of Southern Europe. And there were some very distinct perspectives which went back through 20th century and 19th century history. Uh, and our job somewhere in the middle of that pack was to try and bring people together. And to do that, you had to sell your arguments you with a different sensibility if you were talking to your Polish counterpart as opposed to, say, your, I don't know, Greek or Italian counterpart. And that's, I think, why, you know, history and diplomacy are, in a way, not unrelated as, as, as pastimes or professions, because it is all about integrating different perspectives and, and having respect for different perspectives. For sure, and, and, and certainly, Paul, something that I think we can all bear testament to and hope that although history defines us, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that we have to be tied to it, as, as you mentioned, and uh, citing the, the, the Queen's very eloquent uh, speech at, at, her, at her first state visit to, to Ireland, which is something that I think for all Irish people, 
we we remember. Um, but picking up on something that you said, Paul, and and speaking to one elephant in the room, the room, you talked about a lot of Irish people having connections or having spent time in the UK. But you and I probably would be on the opposite side, wouldn't we? In Scottish, in Scottish terms, in that I did my postgraduate degree, my master's in Edinburgh, and you're you're a proud Glasgow alum. Am I correct in that? That is that is correct. I had the choice between Glasgow and Edinburgh, and I chose. I chose Glasgow, which was a very curious, for, for, for as of an academic choice, it was basically a very emotional and impressionistic thing because my mother had a friend who was doing a postgraduate degree at Edinburgh University. And I knew Edinburgh, the city very well because it was much closer to my hometown. And my mum took me up to Edinburgh on a lovely sunny day and her friend showed us round and everything looked very orderly and nice. And then my mum drove me a week later to Glasgow and it rained the whole day, our car broke down, we got lost, everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. But there was just something about Glasgow and the people and the sense of humour that made me think there wasn't too much to choose from, I thought, in terms of the academic new quality of the courses. And I just had a hunch that I fancied going to, going to Glasgow and thoroughly enjoyed it. And, you know, it's one of those sliding doors moments. Who knows what would have happened if I had gone to gone to Edinburgh but yes um, so we're 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 rivals sort of under the same flag then in that respect absolutely absolutely well I I don't know you said that the weather was lovely in Edinburgh I have to say I found it I found it pretty pretty cold and, and pretty wet as well a lot of the time I was there but maybe so you got it Glasgow, on a good day Glasgow is less cold but even more wet so it depends you know it depends what your preference is on the cold versus rain um sort of um um sort of axes but um uh, it felt to me that it rained. I'm not being a very good advert for tourism in Glasgow. <laughs> it felt like it rained a high proportion of the time there, whereas not quite so much in Edinburgh. But that right. was, goodness help me, that was 30 years ago. So I, I guess climate change has probably changed things a little bit um, in the intervening three decades. For sure. Maybe an agenda item to be put on the COP26 uh, programme. <laughs> exactly. Wet weather is coming home. <laughs> exactly. And another, uh, you know, speaking of another elephant in the room, um, congratulations in, in fairness to, to Scotland on their fantastic uh, football results. You're, you're certainly uh, flying the flag and, and showing us the way somewhat in Ireland. We're a little bit well, disappointed. It's a bit, it's a bit raw, Paul, at the moment. I, I, I really felt for you because I sat in the same room in the, in, in the residence um, uh, for not successive evenings, but I sat watching your game against Slovakia and then I, I confess, I hadn't watched most of the Scotland match. And then as it came towards the end of extra time, I had this sort of heavy feeling in my heart, knowing that something was going to go terribly wrong at the end. Having watched so many failed Scottish attempts to qualify for major tournaments, I was fortunate enough to be a young diplomat in the embassy in Paris back in 1998, at the time of the World Cup, which was the last big tournament that Scotland qualified for. And I was even more fortunate enough to get a ticket, um, not through any diplomatic connections, but simply through a sort of lottery for the opening match, which was Scotland against Brazil. And by an even more, oh, amazing, wow. even more amazing coincidence, John Collins, who then played for Scotland, had been in the year above me at school, and I knew him very slightly, and he scored a penalty for Scotland in that match. So talking of penalties, I went down to the sort of staff kitchen with, um, you know, a bunch, a, a box of chocolates and a sort of a sense of foreboding to watch the penalty shootout. <laughs> and um, there's a there's you'll probably know the sort of English footballer turned pundit Gary Lineker, who coined yes. the phrase that football is a game where eleven men play eleven, rather sort of sexist phrase back in the day. And at the end, the Germans win on penalties. And um, in the end, the Scots won on penalties, and I just couldn't quite believe it. And danced around the kitchen all on my own. Um, but um, <laughs> so the great the great excitement is that if Scotland win their group which has only the small matter of England, the Czech Republic and Croatia. I think I'm right in saying they would play their last 16 match here in Dublin. So I have a 50% chance, I think, of having one of the home nations, England or Scotland, um, coming to Dublin at the end of June next year, which would be a, a tremendous thing for the relationship. Oh, wow. Fantastic. So you'll have to be very diplomatic in cheering for, for both there, won't you? I will. I shall be. I shall be. Let's just say publicly, I'll be very even handed. <laughs> Spoken like a, like a true ambassador, Paul. Like a true well, ambassador. <laughs> I do my best. Um, Paul, Paul, just you know, you touched on um, yeah, and I loved the way you phrased it, the the local issue, and I suppose another another 
looming elephant in the room, as you know, all things, uh, just for shorthand, if I'll just call it Brexit, as, as you know, here in Ireland, we it wasn't uh, it wasn't a, uh, an outcome that that we welcomed. I think it's fair to say nobody in Ireland wanted to see uh, the UK vote vote for Brexit. And indeed, it was something actually we worked very closely with you and and your predecessors in terms of encouraging the the over 120,000 British people living in Ireland to to register to vote actually and and have their say. So I think that was a really important. Uh, piece of outreach uh, voter registration work that that the British Embassy did around the time and uh, that we, we we were very happy to to support and engage with. Um, I know you probably can't go into the minutiae of uh, and and details, but if you can, we'd be obviously delighted to hear of any insights you might want to share. But but how do you see that, Paul, being posted? I suppose to a country that you know we've made no bones about it. We are the most impacted by Brexit and it's probably the most challenging uh, policy uh, strategic issue facing facing Ireland. How do you see that framing being a British ambassador here but also looking at Irish-British relationships in a European context? So I mean it's clearly a huge thing in the relationship and also, of course, the situation of Ireland and Northern Ireland has been a huge thing in the whole Brexit negotiations from, from 2016 uh, onwards. So it's been something that has come up in almost every meeting I guess I've had so far with Irish ministers and, and senior officials and, and others. And um, as you say, uh, none of them makes any secrets of the fact that this is something uh, that uh, they wish wasn't happening, but equally they all accept that it is happening, that it's been voted for by the British people in a referendum and their choice has been confirmed in successive you know, election results as well, and that the government is exercising its, its mandate. But there is very uh, close and intense discussion bilaterally between um, uh, the Irish side and the British side, um, because there are so, so many important you know, bilateral issues, as well as obviously the, the, the negotiations taking place between the UK and uh, the European Commission. But it's really important that I have the opportunity to talk privately to Irish um, uh, ministers and officials about how Britain sees the negotiations and that I have the opportunity to report back, as I do almost every day, uh, into uh, Number 10 and the Foreign Office and other government departments about how um, Irish colleagues see the latest uh, evolution of things because you know the original the definition the etymology of ambassador is messenger and part of our job is to pass messages in both directions and also to pass in or to feed in our own insights and, and ideas so that's a very big part of the the job and has been certainly in my first I think it's now eight or nine weeks here and um, I would hope that we get through to the end of the year we have a, an outcome in the FTA negotiations. We have an outcome in the joint committee, which is overseeing the implementation of the Ireland Northern Ireland Protocol. And we will move into a relationship next year, which is clearly still um, an important element of which is the, the implementation of those outcomes, but in the context of a relationship that is much clearly you know, bigger than Brexit. But um, all that to say that, um, you know, managing the relationship or making a contribution to managing the relationship through this end game of the negotiations is is a very big part of the job. And you know, in your perspective, as you mentioned there, Paul, uh, very very diplomatically, but 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 very uh, very succinctly on the balance, I think that you have to strike between obviously representing the views of the British government in Ireland, and obviously in terms of the Irish government. Uh, and are you know negotiating, being at the negotiating table as, as part of the EU 27. And I suppose it's something that we always remind people here in European Movement Ireland, as you mentioned as well, that whatever happens in terms of the possibility of a deal for which we all are, are very hopeful will, will take place, 
the process itself, it's not all going to end on the 1st of January. There's going to be a huge range of issues to, to work out, and particularly in terms of the Irish-UK economy, the all-island economy, cross-border issues. How, how do you see that evolving for, for yourself as ambassador? So, so a couple of things. One is that we've always been very respectful of the fact that the, uh, the position of Ireland is part of the EU27 and that they have given uh, Barney as their negotiator a detailed mandate or successive mandates at various points in the negotiation. And our negotiator, uh, David Frost, has always been very clear that Barney is his interlocutor and that we wouldn't sort of be going behind the backs of the European Commission to try and you know, prize certain countries away from the EU's position, because it's in our interest to negotiate with a single interlocutor. But there are, of course, distinctive UK-Irish uh, issues where it's legitimate that we have um, a dialogue and that each of us can then feed back into our into our respective sides. But on your on your wider question, which is a really it's a really interesting point, I think clearly the fact of Britain leaving the single market and the customs union will have important effects, which for people in Ireland, because of the common travel area, will be less than they might be uh, for other um, uh, European Union uh, countries. But for businesses, there will be important changes. And we have been very active, as has the Irish government, in communicating to businesses and to individuals that there are important changes upcoming which they need to, to get ready for. I've just done an open letter today to British citizens in Ireland about that. We did an event with the Irish uh, government um, and with the uh, government departments back in London for uh, Irish companies uh, about the various changes that will that will be coming about. So there's that sort of short term, if you like, information and preparation exercise. But, but the more the more exciting part is to be thinking, going back to our earlier conversation, what are the new sort of contours of the landscape, you know, after the end of the transition period? And it's here that I think, you know, one of the elements of this that is very interesting in relation to what you talked about there of the, the shared island and the shared islands, um, is the, the Taoiseach's approach to that agenda, looking very much at the north-south and at the east-west dimensions. And that, to me, has always seemed to be the peculiar genius of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, that it does rest on this balance between the north-south and the east-west dimensions. And I think the, you know, part of, the, part of my job is not just to um, foster the good relationships between the Northern Ireland executive and uh, civil service with their Irish counterparts, um, but also obviously the UK government's relationship with Ireland and the sort of people to people uh, and business to business and science to science and university to university dimensions, both, as I say, between Ireland and Northern Ireland and between Ireland and uh, the UK. And those will, you know, those will adjust and evolve um, once we've completed the Brexit process by leaving the the transition period and as you say we hope with a new a new relationship but the sort of the fundamentals are so are so strong and so deep that it will be it will be an evolution rather than any sort of rupture i think so an evolution rather than a revolution paul yes yes we don't talk about revolution glorious <laughs> one in the 17th century but uh, that's probably also seen very differently in, in different places so yes we're very much evolutionary Right, right. And and tell me, you, you mentioned earlier in the podcast that you were a congenital uh, optimist, I think, is a, is the definition of a, of a diplomat or an ambassador. And Does a Scotland that... football fan. If you're, <laughs> if you're at the intersection of those two points in the Venn diagram, you have to be a congenital optimist. <laughs> Very good. Well, are you that in terms of, I suppose, uh, the outcome to the current process and negotiations? I said in, in the day I presented my credentials to the uh, to the president, I did a sort of short interview with uh, with RTE, and I said that then, I, and I still think now that if we see goodwill and good sense from both sides, there's every reason to think that we'll be able to get uh, to a deal. I've done some big negotiations in my time. I mentioned the NATO summit in 2016. I was the lead UK negotiator for that. The 2005 UN World Summit, I was one of the main negotiators for that. And in both occasions, about, I don't know, 48, 72 hours before the summit deadline, uh, we were far apart on key, 
parts of the substance. Now, this negotiation is a bit different and there's not a single deadline except, of course, for the overall end of the year deadline. But clearly within the next week or two or so, we need to bring this, I was going to say ship to the finishing line. That's a terrible mixed metaphor. But you know what I mean? We need to bring this process to a conclusion. And there are, are still clearly significant gaps. But you know that's what we diplomatic congenital optimists are paid to resolve. And I think between us and our political masters, um, there's a good prospect of being able to um, uh, to bring it to a, to an agreement. But there's still some very important work to be done. And um, you know one of the the good things about this stage in the negotiation is that they're in what, whether you call it the tunnel or the submarine or whatever. But the people who are <laughs> intimately involved in the negotiation, uh, and I've been speaking to some of them, but they're keeping their their cards very close to their chest, which is exactly what I would be doing and indeed did do in those circumstances. So I confess, I don't know, even if I wanted to uh, tell you exactly what was going on, I couldn't. But, you know, I'm very confident that you have experienced professionals on both sides and I think a big shared interest in getting to the to the right outcome. Well, on that on that congenital optimist note, I think I think so. So say all of us. We are too on this side of of uh, the European movement, European movement, Ireland side of the, the fence as well. So no, absolutely. Um, Paul, I might might ask you my last question if I can. We've had such a fascinating conversation. We we could have gone on for many hours more, but I'm sure our listeners would like us to to draw proceedings to a conclusion with, within the hour time frame. So my last question. I'm actually going to go back to what you said at the start about um, when you were diplomatically saying, if I'm reading between reading between the lines and picking up on the tea leaves, that New York, uh, your New York posting was a particularly special one for you, uh, for the circumstances you outlined. Um, you didn't tell us wh where you lived. It wasn't anything uh, with Tower and the word T-R-U-M-P before it or anything, was it? Was that the address? No, 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 no. I was, I was very lucky in that my predecessor in the job, um, Julian King, who in fact was one of my predecessors in, in this job as well, former ambassador to Ireland, um, and, and many of the predecessors going back, I think, to the 1940s, the British mission to the UN had bought this very lovely apartment. Um, I don't know if you know sort of Manhattan, but Park Avenue at 73rd Street, uh, so two blocks away from Central Park, and we had this lovely 10th floor apartment. Um, and um, uh, Julian uh, left to, to go back to Brussels, and I took over his job and also took over his apartment. And um, uh, there was the prospect of the Foreign Office selling it off, and um, which happily they didn't do while we were there, they did afterwards. Um, but we spent three years there um, in this really lovely um, apartment block. We used to go to Trump Tower only because there was a Tower Records in the basement of Trump Tower. So in the days when people still bought antiquated things like VHS video cassettes and DVDs, DVDs were just, I think, coming onto the market then. We used to go there for our, for our audiovisual entertainment, but we never saw, uh, we never saw the, um, the person after whom it was named, but we did see the sort of the glitzy uh, escalator and the glitzy doors, but that was, um, that was the extent of my my Trumpian my Trumpian uh, moments in New York. Well, who who would have guessed that there 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 was the musical element to it as well? But but as part of I suppose the broader, Paul the the broader. US UK relationship um, I'm not going to use the two words you know on that on that relationship that gets <laughs> that gets bandied about so so I won't I won't as well I won't flog it to death but you know in terms for, from a British perspective actually how do you see that future UK US relationship post January the 20th because you know, let, let's be honest, um, uh, President-elect uh, Joseph O. Biden is quite a friend to, to Ireland as well. So we very much see him and see that opportunity for Ireland to be a bridge, both transatlantically, but also into, into, into Europe. What is the view from the UK side of things? I know the Prime Minister had a really good initial uh, conversation with President-elect Biden. Uh, he's been a long time Atlanticist. I think he's been to the Munich Security Conference 37 times or something. He was a supporter of Britain uh, during the Falklands conflict. Um, he's, uh, he's spoken warmly of, of the relationship. And uh, I think that 
you know, there is absolutely no contradiction between having a strong UK-US and strong um, US-Irish relationship. We all know how um, important the American administration or successive American administration's input was into the Northern Ireland uh, peace process. So I think it's, it's, it's a great thing for Ireland and for the UK and uh, for, for Europe as well, that we'll have um, a president who is, uh, is instinctively Atlanticist, who wants to take America back into big multilateral ventures such as uh, the Iran nuclear agreement, um, uh, the UN climate uh, process. Uh, and I think we, we feel that there's, um, there's a great amount to be done together. I mean, not least, um, you know, there's working together to, to get out of the COVID um, emergency and to try and put in place structures that will you prevent or mitigate uh, any future pandemic. But then there's really the, the, sort of the, the fight for our lives, the fight of our lives in terms of trying to manage, um, uh, manage climate change and, and to, to put a lid on the, um, on the, the sort of bubbling plot that, pot that is our, our shared planet. And so I think in the run up to the, the UN conference in, um, in lovely sunny Glasgow next November, um, I think Britain, Ireland, America, the European Union, uh, you know, all the big international players are going to have to put their, their heads together and come up with some really, you know, ambitious uh, you know, game changers. We are hosting with the UN Secretary General and France and Chile and Italy uh, a Climate Ambition Summit in London in December to mark the fifth anniversary of the Paris Agreement and to sort of really start the countdown to the big Glasgow summit uh, next year. The Taoiseach has been invited to, to attend that. But it's really about trying to sort of mobilize international attention after a year in which it's been dominated by, uh, by COVID back onto the, 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 the even bigger prize of you know, saving the planet from, from irreparably damaging uh, climate change. And, and I think, Paul, on, on that note, as a, as a congenital optimist, I think that's, that's a really good note to end our Just the Chats podcast on. Would you agree? I would. I'll just go out and enjoy the lovely Dublin afternoon sunshine. And um, thank you very much. And thank all the <laughs> listeners for bearing with us. It's been, um, it's been a great pleasure for me, uh, Noel, and I hope it might be the first of, if not many, at least several such encounters, and perhaps the next time in person, uh, COVID permitting. Here, uh, uh, here. So say all of us. Many thanks to Britain's ambassador to Ireland, His Excellency Paul Johnston, for a fantastic European Movement Ireland Just the Chats podcast. We could have gone on and on for many hours more where we touched upon everything from Irish-UK relations, North-South dimension, our shared two islands, the future of Europe, and we even cast an eye across the Atlantic and threw in a bit of Scottish football as well. A big thank you to Paul and thank you our listeners for listening. Make sure if you haven't already to follow us across all our social media platforms and stay tuned for our upcoming range of Just the Chats podcast. Thank you very much.